Sometimes in your search for happiness, you ponder the meaning of your life. And what is the truth? You sift your memory for beginnings. The truth. You send your mind ahead for directions. Truth. But all you really know is now, and you are lost in the present. And what is the truth? Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. Welcome back to the only podcast that dares to rank evil. I have absolutely no idea why it's important to claim that. That's right. This is Know Thyself History. We dare to shun all pedantic objections and assign an ordinal number to evildoers. That is my problem with the attempt to rank evil. And today, we are at number one. That's right, the worst human being to ever walk the face of our planet. I have absolutely no idea why it's important to claim that. And I know, and trust me, I regret that it's not much of a surprise. You know who it is by now. But in my defense, I can only say that I didn't want to be cliche. I really wanted to pull a surprise out of my hat. Did not want you to see where this was coming from. But the more I learned about this man, the more I learned about his life, I realized there is no choice. When you have one human being that towers head and shoulders above every other evildoer in history, what choice do you have? A man capable of infecting an entire nation and half the world with his own moral insanity. The man who gives Führers and fascists everywhere a bad name. A bad rap. Adolf Hitler. Hitler was born April 20th, 1889 in Braunau am Inn, a town in Austria near the German border. Hitler wasn't even a German. It took him a while to get his German citizenship. He was kind of a different infant. Instead of crying when he got fussy, he was all... His father was, by all accounts, domineering, overbearing, bad-tempered, dyspeptic customs officer named Alois. And you've probably heard the rumors that Alois might have been part Jewish, much to Hitler's chagrin. So Hitler wanted to pursue his own dreams, but Alois was so stern and so disciplinarian that they constantly butted heads. Now, Hitler's mother, Clara was almost the exact opposite of Alois. She indulged little baby Adolf in everything he ever wanted. She was apparently kind, gentle, but also she didn't have a disciplinarian bone in her body. Clara was initially hired as a maid or servant to Alois, but when Alois's first wife died, he married the much younger Clara, who became Hitler's mother. She bore Alois six children, but only two of them, Adolf and his sister Paula Hitler, I kid you not, they're the only two who survived childhood. Because when Hitler was 11, his little brother Edmund died. Now we don't know too much about what little Adolf was like as a child, but when his brother died, we know that he became more sullen, more pensive, more withdrawn. And some of this information we know from his sister Paula, who after World War II was actually debriefed by U.S. officers. She said that at night, she could hear Hitler being beaten in his room. (laughs) She could hear little Hitler being beaten. <laughs> and he's just so not funny, but he's such a despicable rodent. These beatings had a totally different character than the ones that Stalin's father Beso inflicted on him. Because Hitler was constantly smarting off to Alois. In fact, what Paula, his sister, says about it is this, quote, He was a scrubby little rogue, and all the attempts of father to thrash him for his rudeness were in vain. So Hitler would be totally rude, disrespectful, 
and he would get a beating for it. Now, that's not, I don't agree with that, okay? But it wasn't the same as Bezo beating Stalin. Hitler's mother was always there with a kind caress and soothing words, even if she never intervened. In fact, Paula said this, quote, My mother was a very soft and tender person, the compensatory element between the almost too harsh father. And the point that Paula makes is that she did not consider them abused children by any means. So one morning in 1903, when Adolf is 14 years old, his father gets up, walks down into the kitchen, and has his morning pint of beer, and dies. And no, there was no foul play suspected. He had heart failure, and it seems that his heart just stopped beating. Now, Hitler had never excelled at anything, okay? That's one thing to keep in mind. As a kid, he really didn't do anything very well. Lazy, shiftless, idle, headstrong, wanted to do his own thing, no discipline, and it got much worse after Alois died. He would attend school for a while. When he was 16, he faked an illness to persuade his mother that he was not able to continue school. And Hitler was a hypochondriac all his life, so he might not have been faking an illness. He might have really thought he was sick. Anyway, he drops out of school at 16, eventually goes to another school, wanders around a little bit, shifting schools, and finally passes his exams and graduates. After he graduated, he didn't do much of anything, wandered around. His mother was his chief enabler. She would cook and clean for him, do his laundry. One day he decided he wanted to be a musician, so she bought him a piano, played it a few times. Then he decided he wanted to be an artist, so his mother gets him canvas and paints. I mean, Hitler is that guy, laboring under the mother-induced delusion that he was good at things. According to the historian Ian Kershaw, this is what Hitler's life was like. In the daytime, he would take walks through the woods, he would wander around, he would draw pictures of things, write some poetry, tell his mother what he wanted her to make him for dinner. If he got really ambitious, he might go look at some more things. Who knows? And then at night, she would take him to the theater. So it's no wonder that later in his life, Hitler would say that this was the happiest time of his entire existence. It's pretty accepted that Hitler did not form normal friendships, symmetrical relationships later in his life. But it seems that at a very young age, he loved his mother dearly. In fact, he was very attached to Clara. So he was capable of bonding with other people. I don't know if that makes things better or worse. But every year for her birthday, he bought her a theater ticket. He spoke of her with great deference and affection. And the worst thing that happened to Hitler in his entire young life was when Clara got sick. In 1907... She had a pain in her chest, and she was diagnosed by Dr. Bloch, a Jewish doctor, with breast cancer. She went through a painful course and ended up dying a few months later. After she had the breast removed, Hitler apparently took very good care of her. According to Paula, quote, My brother Adolf spoiled my mother during this time of her life with overflowing tenderness. He was indefatigable in his care for her, wanted to comply with any desire she could possibly have, and did all to demonstrate his great love for her, end quote. It was really apparent to everyone who saw them interact that Hitler almost seemed to feel every pain his mother felt. In fact, Dr. Bloch wrote, quote, Outwardly, his love for his mother was his most striking feature. I have never witnessed a closer attachment, end quote. According to Mike Rosenwald, writing in the Washington Post, Clara had to sleep in the kitchen during her breast cancer treatment because it was the warmest room in the house. And Hitler decided he would sleep in the same room with her. So he spent his nights where he could hear her and attend to her every need. He also seemed to become a very responsible, obedient son. He actually corrected Paula, told her she had to do better in school, and in other ways tried to take some of the parenting stress off of Clara. 
It seems like Adolf finally had something he could put his heart and soul into trying to succeed at, but unfortunately he didn't succeed because his mother died in 1907 and she would never know what became of Adolf Hitler. According to Dr. Bloch's memoir, he said, quote, I found Adolf, pale-faced at his mother's side. On a sketchbook was a drawing of Clara, his last memory. In all my career, I never saw anyone so prostrate with grief as Adolf Hitler. Dr. Bloch said that Adolf bowed to him and said, I shall be grateful to you forever. And part of the reason for that gratitude is Dr. Bloch was very generous. Even when they couldn't afford to pay him, he would come and care for Clara Hitler. Hitler did keep his word, by the way. Even in 1937, when he was the Fuhrer, he inquired after where Dr. Bloch was and made sure he had safe passage out of German-occupied territory. He sent the Bloch family Christmas cards for years afterward. And so some people looking at that would say, you know, he wasn't such a bad guy. But to me, it almost makes what happened afterward that much worse. Because Adolf knew of the humanity and compassion of this Jewish doctor toward his mother and toward him, comforting them throughout a very difficult course of treatment. And it's also evident that Adolf was capable of human emotion. So if you ask me, seeing this part of Adolf Hitler doesn't in any way lessen the evil of what he did afterward. If anything, it kind of magnifies it to me. But I digress. Let's go back to the timeline. After his mother dies, Hitler moves to Vienna. He's trying to enroll in the famous Academy of Fine Arts in Vienna. But it doesn't seem that Adolf has the right stuff to get admitted. He fails the entrance exam once. He fails it twice. The comments of the people reviewing his portfolio, I think, are instructive. They say he does very well with buildings. Maybe he should be an architect. But his human characters lack detail. They lack depth. They lack life. So he fails to get admitted after two years of trying to get into the Vienna School of Fine Arts. And you can't help but wondering if somebody had let him in, if he'd been admitted to the Vienna School of Fine Arts, if the world would have been a different place. Hard to say. We do know that after Clara's death, and after he's rejected twice from the Vienna School of Fine Arts, he goes through a period of self-doubt, depression, he withdraws from his friends, and he is living on a pittance, selling paintings wherever he can for a few bucks, trying to earn a living on the streets of Vienna. At some point, he tries to enroll in the army, and he is rejected, because he's too sickly. They don't think he can handle the stresses of being a soldier. Whenever he can, through selling a painting or however he can get money, he goes to the opera at night, and there he learns to love the works of Richard Wagner. Wagner would become a great inspiration to Hitler later on in his life. And it might be in Vienna, during a period of depression and possibly some resentment, that his extreme anti-Semitism starts to fester. He falls under the thrall of Vienna Mayor Karl Luger. He studies the way in which Luger's party can use propaganda and mass organization to increase its own power. He also becomes enthralled with the ideas of racial hygiene and the racial superiority of the German people. And as we know, that would become central to the entire identity of the Nazi party later on. Now in 1913, Hitler's had enough of Vienna or it's had enough of him or something. He decides to move to Munich, Germany. So he takes the last of his little pension that he got from his father, moves to Munich. World War I breaks out shortly thereafter and Hitler volunteers for action in the German army. This time he's not rejected. This time they're at war. They'll take every warm body they can get. They'll even take a sickly Austrian. And frankly, we have to admit, Hitler served with distinction. He was a dispatch runner and he served in several of the major battles of World War I along the Western Front. And being a dispatch runner was probably one of the most dangerous jobs you could have in the army. 
He was responsible for running between different positions under heavy enemy fire often and conveying important military information, so this very dangerous job. And Hitler's wounded twice during his career as a military dispatch runner. But he won several awards for bravery and eventually won the Iron Cross First Class, which is one of the highest military honors. So Hitler was many very bad things, but he was no coward. Toward the end of the war, he's wounded in a mustard gas attack, and he's temporarily blinded. As a consequence, he spends the wrapping up scene of World War I in a field hospital. And it's only when the war is over that he learns that the Germans had capitulated to the Allies. Hitler is enraged by this. Once again, something that he had put his whole heart and soul into had ended in defeat. And he blamed this loss not on the generals, not on the leaders of the army, but on various political and ethnic groups within Germany, specifically communists and Jews. That's right. That's how the mind of Adolf Hitler worked. Wasn't the people who actually had power who lost the war and surrendered. No, it was the communists and the Jews, of course. And he accused them of weakening the state from within. And somehow that led to Germany's defeat in World War I. Never mind that most military historians would blame the German high command, and in particular, Erich Ludendorff, who was in charge of the military. Adolf Hitler would later team up with Erich Ludendorff during a failed coup attempt, so of course Adolf Hitler couldn't blame him. At any rate, the war is lost. Hitler has nothing to do, so a friend of his named Ernst Röhm, who Hitler would later kill, helps him find a job as a political officer in the German army. And in that role, he goes around to the various political groups meeting in Munich, especially the radical groups, to see what they're up to. And it's in that capacity that Hitler first attends a meeting of a group called the German Workers' Party. And he listens to them rant and rave and froth at the mouth about the Jews and about how the Germans are the best people on the planet and the noble Aryan race and racial hygiene, finds himself agreeing with most of their rhetoric. So even while he is still ostensibly a political officer looking into the group, he joins the German Workers' Party and starts attending all of their meetings. And Hitler soon becomes one of their most fanatical members. He discovers that he has a skill for public speaking. If you could call this public speaking, it sounds more like public yelling, screaming, and ranting. And Hitler is unnatural at ranting. He rises through the ranks of the German Workers' Party very quickly, almost immediately eclipsing even the leader of the party, Drexler, in importance and popularity. He causes the ranks of the party to swell dramatically. Many people join just to hear Adolf Hitler's ideas, expressed in that calm, rational manner that Hitler excelled at. So in 1919, when Hitler joins the German Workers' Party, they have about a thousand members, mostly due to Hitler's public speaking skills, if you want to call them that. Their ranks well to 6,000 members by 1921. They then want to merge with some socialist party, and that infuriates Hitler. He threatens to quit. Hitler by this time is so influential that if he quit the German Workers' Party, that would spell doom for the entire movement. He says, the only way I won't resign is if I become the leader of the entire movement and you fire Anton Drexler. So they have a vote. Hitler wins the vote overwhelmingly, and he is named Führer of the newly renamed National Socialist German Workers' Party, which of course is the Nazis. Once Hitler is in charge, he turns the rhetoric up to 11. And because he makes so many public speeches throughout Bavaria, becomes a very recognizable public figure. Lucky for Hitler, or for any demagogue, economic conditions are very poor in Germany at this time. So by the end of 1923, Hitler, through mostly his own efforts, has swelled the party ranks to 56,000 members. He is now a full-fledged strong force in Bavarian and German politics. 
Now, if you don't think that power went to Hitler's head, you don't know Adolf Hitler. So he decides in 1923 that he's so popular and that his message is so important that he can rule all of Germany. So he stages what comes to be known as the Beer Hall Pooch. He reaches out to the loser of World War I, General Erich Ludendorff, remember we mentioned him earlier, and asks for him to support a coup attempt on first the Bavarian government and then on the entire German government. Ludendorff agrees, and they set to work. Now, many psychopathic dictators throughout history have had a role model that helped to inspire them, and Adolf Hitler is no different. In this case, his inspiration was Benito Mussolini. Mussolini had a successful march on Rome that led to him seizing power in Italy. So Hitler gets the idea to have a march of his own, first on Munich and then on Berlin. On the 8th of November 1923, he and General Ludendorff stage what comes to be known as the Beer Hall Push. At the time in Germany, there were these beer halls where hundreds or thousands of people would go every single night, drink beer, and argue about politics. And at one of these Munich beer halls on the night of November 8th, Ernst Carr, the leader of the Bavarian government, is holding a meeting and giving a speech. There were about 3,000 people in attendance at Carr's speech. Hitler and about 600 SA, which is the storm detachment, the paramilitary wing of the Nazi party, surround the beer hall, set up a machine gun, Hitler begins to march up to the front of the auditorium, much to the shock and chagrin, of course, of Carr. With Hitler are several of the people who are his most trusted advisors. Sounds kind of like the roll call in hell because it's Hermann Goering, Heinrich Himmler, Ernst Röhm, and many other disturbed individuals. The crowd is totally unruly. Hitler has to stand on a chair and scream in that Hitler voice of his. The national revolution has broken out. He fires a shot into the ceiling. He says the hall is surrounded by 600 men. No one is allowed to leave. He goes on to say that the national government is now deposed and that he and Ludendorff are now in charge. So Hitler gives a speech, then he turns the time over to Goering while he goes and tries to get the leaders of the Bavarian government to capitulate to him. Hitler comes back and gives another speech and says, quote, Our battle is against the Berlin Jew government and the criminals of 1918, end quote. In other words, he considers the people who surrendered to the Allied powers in 1918 to be criminals. He turned the entire beer hall, all 3,000 men, to his side with that speech. In fact, one eyewitness who was there said, quote, I cannot remember in my entire life such a change of attitude in a crowd in a matter of a few moments, a few seconds. Hitler had turned them inside out as one turns a glove inside out with just a few sentences. It almost had something of a hocus-pocus or magic about it, end quote. So Hitler is successful in turning the opinion of these 3,000 drunk German men. Then he tries to reach out to the Crown Prince Ruprecht of Bavaria to support him in this coup attempt. Ruprecht does not support him, and pretty soon their beer hall push the campaign. The coup starts to die out. It loses momentum. On the 9th of November, they realize that they've got nothing to do and nowhere to go. The masses are not rallying to their cause. And at that point, the Nazis and the Beer Hall Pushes are about to give up when Ludendorff calls out, We will march! So they decide to march. 2,000 men start marching. They really don't know where they're marching to or what their objective is. So they really did not plan that one very well. And Ludendorff calls out on the spur of the moment, let's march on the Bavarian Defense Ministry. So that's where they start marching. They're all marching toward the Bavarian Defense Ministry. But by this time, the police have had a chance to regroup. And this marching crowd comes up against a wall of 130 armed policemen. They exchange gunfire. 
16 Nazis are killed, 4 policemen are killed, and the Nazis scatter. Goring is shot in the leg, but he of course recovers and survives, unfortunately. Hitler runs for his life and is captured two days later. General Ludendorff seems to have harbored some resentment, some contempt for Hitler because of the way he fled when the police officers started shooting. But be that as it may, two days later Hitler is captured and he's put on trial for high treason. Hitler really toned down the rhetoric, sounded much more mature, much more sane and rational. He just loved Germany, loved the fatherland. He dropped all the anti-Semitism. And many of the people on the jury were members of the National Socialist Workers' Party, at least supported it. They wanted to acquit Hitler outright, but the high judge said, no, you can't acquit him. He's clearly guilty of treason. So in the end, they sentenced him to five years. That sounds like quite a long time, but realize he probably should have been hung when he was convicted of high treason. And this trial, even though he ended up losing, was a PR bonanza for Hitler. The papers carried everything he said. The radio carried his speeches. He reached out to a much broader audience, and many people found themselves sympathizing with Adolf Hitler. So in the end of the trial, although he's sentenced to five years, he's now much more famous than he was at the beginning of the trial. And the outcome of the whole affair was actually pretty beneficial to Hitler because he only ends up serving about eight months. He ends up writing Mein Kampf during that eight months with the help of Maurice and Hess. He wins sympathy from the German public and also wins a propaganda victory. It's difficult to say what would have happened if Hitler had not organized the Beer Hall Push, if he had not been imprisoned, had not written Mein Kampf and had not garnered so much media attention. Who knows what would have happened? His public speaking skills probably would have put him back into the limelight anyway. On a tangential note, Hermann Goering, who's shot in the leg while he's running away from the police, ends up having to take morphine and other opiate painkillers to relieve the pain in his leg. Eventually, he becomes addicted and would remain addicted to opiates for the rest of his life. Hitler also decided at that point that breaking the law, organizing coups and rebellions was not for him. He was going to stay within the bounds of the law from then on and seize power that way. After Hitler was released from prison, he reorganized the National Socialist German Workers' Party, which had been outlawed because of the Beer Hall Push, and he organized it around a core group of loyal followers who would remain the core of the Nazi party throughout the rest of his life. Another thing that a lot of people don't realize is Hitler was actually made rich by proceeds from the sales of Mein Kampf over the next several years. Proceeds from that book gave him the freedom to devote all of his time to his political ambitions. Of course, he got a lot of donations from wealthy donors as well. But Mein Kampf would go on to sell over 12 million copies. So he received substantial royalties from that. Another fact that I'm going to put in here, because I don't know where else to put it, Hitler survived over 20 assassination attempts during his lifetime. Not only was he shot in World War I, shot at in the Beer Hall Push, shot at many different times, but he also was the target of assassination attempts multiple times, including two bomb plots that really look like they should have worked. In 1939, a carpenter named George Elser tries to assassinate Hitler with a bomb plot. In 1944, a colonel in the German army, Klaus von Stauffenberg, sees Hitler running the country into the ground and tries to assassinate him, also with a bomb plot. Somehow, Hitler gets out of all of these assassination attempts. The one he couldn't get away from, of course, was the one that he himself was leading, the assassination attempt on Hitler by Hitler. But we'll get to that later. So the question arises, Hitler is out of prison. Sure, he's written a best-selling book. But one thing to keep in mind, Hitler never won a Germany-wide election. He never won a national election. He won a few party elections here and there and so forth. 
So how did he rise to such power in Germany? How did he become der Führer? How did he become essentially a cult leader for an entire nation? Well, Hitler gets out of prison. He reorganizes the Nazi party. But the fortunes of the Nazi party rise dramatically in the 1930s because there's a worldwide depression. And when people get desperate enough, then they start to buy into the demagoguery, the propaganda, the fascism that Hitler was peddling. And so the Nazi party in the September 1930 election, Nazi party wins 6.5 million votes. So they're a force to be reckoned with on the national stage. Hitler, of course, continues to gain power and prestige and influence. He travels around the country. He's one of the first politicians in Germany to use airplanes, so he can speak in multiple cities in the same day. In April of 1932, he runs for president. Joseph Goebbels is furiously spreading propaganda throughout Germany about why they need to elect Hitler. Hitler's campaign slogan is freedom and bread. But unfortunately for Adolf, he's running against a German institution in the person of Paul von Hindenburg. Von Hindenburg is the six-foot-six giant of a man who had a cult following of his own, frankly. And a lot of von Hindenburg's popularity came from World War I. He was the decisively victorious general in the Battle of Tannenberg. But even in World War I, Hindenburg is 66. So he's a tough old campaigner, but the emphasis should be on the word old. By the time he wins the election in 1932, he's like 84 years old. And even though he had been elected president, the Nazis had more seats in the Reichstag than any other party. They weren't the majority, but they had the most seats. So Hitler says, look, my party has the most seats, I deserve a seat at the table. I want power. And he pushes for this. Von Hindenburg doesn't like Hitler, doesn't want to share power with him. But eventually, in 1933, he capitulates to these demands. And in order to try to form some kind of cooperative, peaceful government, he appoints Hitler chancellor in 1933. And you can see that picture online if you look up Hindenburg appointing Hitler chancellor. You see this giant of a man towering over Adolf Hitler as he swears him in as the Chancellor of all Germany. As we said before, von Hindenburg was quite old at this time, and he became sickly, became too feeble to really put up much resistance to Adolf Hitler. So how long do you think Adolf Hitler shared power gracefully before he started scheming and conniving in his scheming, conniving, little angry, vicious, venomous brain to take over all power? If you guessed about five minutes, you're probably right. So he asks von Hindenburg to dissolve the Reichstag and hold new elections immediately, knowing that with his new position as chancellor, the Nazi party will gain even more seats within the Reichstag. But before these new elections can take place, the Reichstag burns to the ground. So you can imagine the national outrage. That would be like the U.S. Capitol burning to the ground. And Hitler successfully urges President von Hindenburg to pass what's called the Reichstag Fire Decrees. And this has the effect of giving Hitler even more power. It suspends all basic human rights and allows the government to hold people without trial indefinitely. Now, Hitler primarily blamed the communists for the fire, people he's always hated. And with the new Reichstag Fire Decrees, the Communist Party almost ceases to exist in Germany as its members are rounded up and held and the party itself is almost persecuted out of existence. Shortly after this, Congress, or the Reichstag, meeting in a new building that hasn't burned to the ground, passes a law with the Orwellian name of the Law to Remedy the Distress of the German People and Reich, also known now as the Enabling Act. Essentially what it does is it allows Adolf Hitler as Chancellor dictatorial control. 
he can now make any important decision without the vote or the backing of the Reichstag. Now, you might be asking yourself, as I was, why would members of what is essentially the German parliament vote to give themselves no power whatsoever? The answer is actually very simple. At the time they were casting their votes, all non-Nazi members of the Reichstag were surrounded by SA and SS officers. Now, these are names that come up again and again, so I want to just give you an idea of what they are. You probably already know, but imagine what a nightmare it would be if, say, in the United States, the Democratic and Republican parties had armed paramilitary wings that were capable of using deadly force And imagine that this paramilitary unit numbered in the millions. Imagine that they rivaled the U.S. Army, the FBI, the CIA, and that at every important vote in Congress, they were watching the paper or watching whatever button you push to see how you voted. That's what it was like for the Reichstag. The SS, or Schutzstaffel, was the paramilitary wing of the Nazi party. Early on in the history of the party, there were just a few volunteers who would provide security at town meetings and so forth. After Heinrich Himmler joins in 1925, he becomes the leader of the organization, and he turns it into one of the most powerful organizations in all of Nazi Germany. Now, the SS has several branches, but three main ones. You have the General SS, and the General SS is responsible for enforcing the racial policies of Nazi Germany and general police work and spying and propaganda and terror and so forth, all these noble enterprises. The military branch of the SS, the Schutzstaffel, was called the Waffen-SS, and that's composed of combat soldiers. The third wing of the SS was probably one of the most evil organizations in all of history. I have absolutely no idea why it's important to claim that. Yeah, sorry, doctor, we're just going to have to say it like it is. One of the most evil organizations in history. It's called the Death's Head Unit of the SS. And it was these Death's Head units that ran the concentration and extermination camps. The Gestapo and the intelligence agencies were also affiliated with the SS. But that's the SS. Now the SA, what is that? The SA was the original paramilitary organization of the Nazis. In fact, when the SS first formed, it was kind of a wing of the SA itself. The SA was also known as the brown shirts because of the color of their uniform. Mussolini had his black shirts, the SA had their brown shirts. And the SA basically functioned during Hitler's rise to power to intimidate his opponents, to protect him personally, and so forth. Kind of the same things that the SS formed for later. The problem is, is that the SA was run by Ernst Röhm. Now, you'll remember that name from earlier in the podcast. Ernst Röhm runs the SA, and he sees it as a separate organization. They have goals and ambitions that start to deviate a little bit from the Nazi party, especially after Hitler seizes power. The SA, the brown shirts, want power of their own. By the time Hitler is chancellor, they number almost three million men they put forward a plan to absorb the German army into the SA itself. And so this, of course, alarms Hitler. He doesn't want Ernst Röhm to become that powerful. He doesn't want the SA to become that powerful because Hitler wants power. That's one thing we can say for sure about Hitler. When you question all of his other motivations, one thing is absolutely clear, that he was driven by an insatiable lust for power. There were also differences of temperament and social standing between the SS and the SA. Typically, SS members were middle class. Often they were educated. The SA was a little bit more radical and actually more violent in some cases than the SS. 
The SA members were chiefly from the working class, the poverty-stricken, or the unemployed. So the SS, or Schutzstaffel, is the paramilitary organization of the Nazis under the control of Heinrich Himmler. The SA, or the Brown Shirts, is the paramilitary organization originally affiliated with the Nazi party. But under the control of Ernst Röhm, these brown shirts wanted to seek power of their own. In fact, at one time, the brown shirts become so powerful that Ernst Röhm basically sends out a declaration saying that the whole army has been subsumed into his brown shirts and that the actual German army is nothing but a training ground for becoming an SA member. Now, when you have two organizations run by violent sociopathic ideologues, there's a pretty good chance that they're going to butt heads at some point, and that's what happens. Himmler and Goering, who have high stakes in this battle between the brown shirts and the SS, play Adolf Hitler like a fiddle. They work his paranoia, his narcissism. They convince him that if the brown shirts aren't suppressed, he's going to become obsolete. They point out the fact that some of Hitler's old enemies are joining with the brown shirts. Of course, Hitler's having none of that. They had Hitler wound up like some loud, screaming, sweating little Chucky dog. Yeah! And of course, the result was deadly. Hitler orders Ernst Röhm and the other SA leaders to attend a meeting with him at a hotel in Bavaria. The brown shirt leaders show up, not really suspecting, I think, what was going to happen. Hitler comes with a bunch of SS troops and personally arrests Ernst Röhm and many of the SA leaders. Other brown shirt leaders are arrested, 200 in all. Many, if not most of these brown shirt leaders, are executed, shot right on the spot. Ernst Röhm is able to survive because Hitler pardons him based on his past assistance to the Nazi party. But Goering and Himmler won't have any of that. They keep working Hitler, working Hitler. They convince him that Ernst Röhm has to die. Hitler says, okay, I guess he has to die. <laughs> but I think he should at least be allowed to commit suicide. So he makes that offer to Ernst Röhm, leader of the brown shirts. You can commit suicide instead of being executed. Röhm refuses and two SS officers shoot him. And thus ends the career of the leader of the brown shirts, Ernst Röhm, former friend of Hitler, and good riddance. Some of the German population is horrified by what happened, but the majority are actually all too happy to kiss the rule of law goodbye, and they actually celebrate extrajudicial execution as decisive actions by a strong leader. Now look, I don't want to be too disparaging of the German population at the time. But as I look at the whole thing, it reminds me of the Batman movie, The Dark Knight. Hitler was not the hero the German people needed. But he seems to have been the hero they wanted. And you could sure make the case that he was the hero that they deserved. In the end, a lot of Hitler's political rivals conveniently ended up dying in the Night of the Long Knives. And not only did Hitler get away with it, he was actually celebrated for it. Now, lest you think Hitler just used his anti-Semitism as a way to gain power with a bunch of racist bigots, let me assure you that that was not the case. Hitler truly believed his own rhetoric. From 1933 until the start of the war in 1939, Hitler and the Nazis instituted regulations and laws in the hundreds restricting the rights of Jews in society. Hitler promised he would persecute Jews if given power, and he was as good as his word. One of the first things that he did was April 1st, 1933, he implemented a national boycott of all Jewish businesses. Signs were hung on Jewish shops saying things like, Germans, defend yourself, don't shop here. Six days later, April 7th, 1933, Hitler passes the 
Law for the Restoration of the Professional Civil Service. What does that mean to restore the civil service? Essentially, it means Jews cannot participate in any level of the civic government. Shortly after this, Hitler passed more laws, laws that restrict the number of Jewish students at schools and universities, laws that limit the number of Jews who can work as doctors or lawyers. He revoked the license of Jewish tax consultants. Goebbels' Office of Propaganda recommended the burning of students' books. 25,000 un-German books were burned in 1933 and 1934. By 1934, Jewish actors are forbidden from performing in film or theater in Germany. 1935 was a real banner year for Nazi garbage. In September of 1935, the Nuremberg Laws were introduced. This is where they decided to define a Jew. Anyone with three or four grandparents who were Jewish, regardless of whether they considered themselves Jewish or observed the religion, could be persecuted as a Jew. Initially, if you had one or two Jewish ancestors, you were considered a mixed race but still were not persecuted as a Jew under these Nuremberg laws. But eventually, even the mixed-race rights were curtailed over time. So the first Nuremberg law basically said if you were a Jew, if you had three or four Jewish grandparents, you were not a German citizen and never could be one. You were what was called a subject of the state. The second Nuremberg law dealt with what they called race defilement. That is, Jews could not marry or have sexual relationships with non-Jews. And this one, I have no idea where this one came from. If you were a Jew, you could not employ a German housekeeper under the age of 45, because that would just be a recipe for race defilement, I guess. Who knows? And last but not least, no person who fit the definition as Jewish could fly the German flag. You had to fly a Jewish flag. In 1936, that was kind of a banner year because Hitler toned down all of his insanity, all of his anti-Semitic rhetoric, and that's because he was hosting the Olympic Games, and he knew the world would not look on his treatment of the Jews favorably. So active persecution of Jews was toned down during the Olympic Games, during 1936. Of course, after the Olympics, persecution of Jews intensified again. Jewish businesses were Aryanized, which means they were closed down and taken over by non-Jews. Schools were segregated. In fact, at public schools and universities, theater, sports events, they had Aryan zones where Jews just couldn't go. Jewish doctors could not treat Aryan patients. They could only treat Jewish patients. And Jews began to have to carry identity cards and have their passports stamped with the letter J. Jews who came to Germany who were not citizens were just deported especially Polish Jews who were taken to a concentration camp by the Polish border. They were denied entrance back into Poland, and yet they were not allowed in Germany. But I'll come back to that because I just want to make a mention that in 1938 also, during the Munich Agreement, Hitler was able to annex a part of Czechoslovakia during what's called the Munich Agreement. And it's kind of funny because many of the major powers of Europe were there to negotiate this agreement, but Czechoslovakia had no representation. But the whole thing had the effect of making Hitler even more popular with the German public. Now let's go back to the deportation of Polish Jews. One couple who was deported was named Greenspan. The Greenspans had a son named Herschel Greenspan who was living in Paris at the time. And when he heard that his parents, who had lived in Germany since 1911, had been deported to the border of Poland, he was understandably very angry. So he bought a pistol and bullets and went to the German embassy in Paris. 
He calmly asked if he could see an embassy official. He was taken to the office of a young man named Ernst Vom Rath. And there, Herschel Greenspan shot Vom Rath three times in the abdomen. He made no attempt to escape, and when the police interrogated him, he said he had shot Vom Rath as retribution for the deportation of Polish Jews. It also appears that he was having a homosexual affair with Vomrath that ended very badly. But whatever the reason for this murder, it was the perfect pretext for Hitler to escalate his campaign against the Jews. So, of course, Hitler sends his personal doctor to Paris to care for Vomrath. He points out that this murder happened on the exact same date as the original Beer Hall Pooch. And after Vomrath dies of his gunshot wounds... Hitler has Joseph Goebbels give a speech saying essentially, if anyone feels outraged by the Jews and wants to attack them, the Nazi government would not blame them. So in other words, it's open season on Jews. A lot of people think the violence of the Night of Broken Glass was spontaneous, but it was actually well orchestrated and planned and instigated by Nazi party officials. As a consequence of this frenzy they whipped up, 267 synagogues were burned to the ground, looted, smashed, destroyed between November 9th and 10th. Countless Jewish businesses, countless Jewish homes were destroyed. At a minimum, 91 Jews were killed and about 30,000 Jews were arrested. And most people see this Kristallnacht, this night of broken glass, as the unofficial kickoff of the Holocaust. Another event that heralded what was to come under Hitler's Nazi party began in September of 1939, and it was called Action T4, but more correctly known as mass murder through involuntary euthanasia. German physicians are authorized to select patients who are deemed incurably sick after a critical medical examination and then administer them what they call, quote, mercy death, end quote. And we don't have to wonder who is behind this. Hitler, in October of 1939, backdates a note to 1st of September 1939, indicating that he authorized the program. He gives the note to his personal physician and has them begin the euthanasia, the mercy killings, as they're called. Killings take place from September of 1939 until the end of World War II. 275 to 300,000 people were killed in psychiatric hospitals in Germany and Austria and in territories that the German army occupied. Now, if you look for information about this, you'll see the figure 70,273. That's how many victims were originally recorded for this program. But that number has increased dramatically by discoveries of victims list in East Germany after the fall of the Berlin Wall. Who was killed? Well, about half of the people who were killed were taken from Catholic and Protestant asylums with the approval of Catholic and Protestant asylum directors. Among those killed were children, quote, all children under three years of age in whom any of the following serious hereditary diseases were suspected. Idiocy, Down syndrome, microcephaly, hydrocephaly, malformations of all kinds, especially limbs, head, and spinal column, and paralysis including spastic conditions. According to R.J. Lifton, author of The Nazi Doctors, Conditions in World War II changed things. By September of 1939, funds were getting scarce, and so the age restriction to three years old no longer obtained. In fact, he says, quote, Various borderline or limited impairments in children of different ages, culminating in the killing of those designated as juvenile delinquents, Jewish children, 
could be placed on the net primarily because they were Jewish, and at one of the institution, a special department was set up for minor Jewish Aryan half-breed euthanasia, end quote. The first adults killed by this euthanasia program, Action T4, were in Poland. After the Nazis invaded on the 1st of September 1939, any adults with disabilities were gunned down by SS officers on the spot. Prior to invading Poland, the Gestapo had worked for a couple of years to compile a list of Poles who they thought needed to be executed. This was done under the command of Reinhard Heydrich. When the Germans invaded Poland then, they killed about 45,000 Poles during what came to be known as Operation Tannenberg. Now, during Operation Tannenberg, they also emptied all asylums and hospitals in keeping with the stated objectives of Operation T4 by murdering every single patient in hospitals and asylums in occupied Poland. They then spread this idea, this plan, to other occupied territories. And remember, Hitler kicked all this off with that October letter. This is what Hitler wrote in 1939, quote, Reich leader Buhler and Dr. Brandt are entrusted with the responsibility of extending the authority of physicians to be designated by name so that patients who, after a most critical diagnosis, on the basis of human judgment, are considered incurable and can be granted mercy death, end quote. In German hospitals, there was at least some semblance of legality and selectivity to these murders, but in Polish and other occupied territories, No one was left behind. Killings were inflicted with gas chambers, gas vans, sealed army bunkers, machine guns. Families weren't even informed about their murdered relatives. And the empty wards of these hospitals were just handed over to the SS to use as barracks. To its credit, the Holy See denounced Action T4 in 1940. But many of the local priests refused to comply with this denunciation and continued to cooperate with the Nazis. And Action T4 was not Hitler's only eugenics program. In fact, 1939 was kind of a banner year for Hitler arresting homosexuals. They were sent to concentration camps, and he forced them to wear pink triangles to identify their crime and their disease, as the Nazis considered it. In a little bit, we'll talk about all the different groups that the Nazis persecuted. The list is not small, and the numbers are huge. But for now, I want to get back to the timeline. I'm going to have to pick it up a little bit. In 1938, as I said, Hitler signs the Munich Pact, ceding certain areas of Czechoslovakia back to Germany. Now, instead of that satisfying Hitler, it only seems to whet his appetite for territorial annexation. Maybe part of the reason for that is because everybody considered it this great victory. Hitler is named Time Magazine's Man of the Year for 1938. In 1939, Hitler signs a non-aggression pact with Joseph Stalin. This clears the way for him to invade Poland without any Russian interference. So, 1st of September 1939, Germany invades Poland. Using his blitzkrieg warfare, he very quickly takes all of Poland. This causes France and England, who have treaties with Poland, to declare war on Germany. And World War II is officially underway. In response, Hitler invades France, very quickly crushing any French resistance, marching into Paris. He wants to invade Great Britain in what's called Operation Sea Lion, but to do that, he has to soften up the British defenses. So he starts a bombing campaign against England that comes to be known as the Battle of Britain. It's amazing how much territory Hitler was able to conquer around this time. In just the year 1940, he steps up his military activities, invades Norway, Denmark, France, Luxembourg, Netherlands, and Belgium, and begins those bombing raids on the United Kingdom. 
He signs treaties with Mussolini in Italy and with Hirohito in Japan and forms the Axis. And in 1941, he takes on his most ambitious project yet. He decides to violate that non-aggression pact that he signed with Joseph Stalin and initiate Operation Barbarossa. We talked about this during the Siege of Leningrad episode. Operation Barbarossa is launched on June 22, 1941, and the largest invasion force ever assembled smashes its way into Russia and seizes huge portions of the country. In December of 1941, Japan attacks Pearl Harbor, and because of his treaty with Japan, Hitler has to declare war on the United States as well. Talk about stretching yourself thin when you're a country the size of Germany. Hitler is taking on Great Britain, which is the world's largest empire at the time. He's taking on the United States, which is the world's largest financial power at the time. And he's taking on the Soviet Union, which has the world's largest army, all at the same time. The man is a megalomaniac with no sense of proportion, and it's going to cost him his life and his legacy, and a huge part of Germany's future. So he starts losing battle after battle. He gives up on the whole Battle of Britain, abandons Operation Sea Lion. In 1942, he fails to seize the Suez Canal, and they lose control over North Africa. They suffer defeats at the Battle of Stalingrad in 1942-3, through and the Battle of Kursk in 1943. In fact, that Battle of Stalingrad, which ends in February of 1943, is seen as the key turning point of the entire German war effort. If you just look at the numbers involved, the war was going to turn at some point against Hitler, but that's when it really did. Growing up in the United States, I pretty much had the idea, and I don't know where I got it from, that the Americans won World War II. But at least as far as the European theater goes, the Soviet army was mainly responsible for defeating the Nazis. They had a lot of help, but they did the yeoman's work. They drove the Nazis out of Russia, across Poland, and all the way back into Germany, losing millions and millions of soldiers and civilians along the way. But the point of all this is that Hitler had no military judgment. He was completely erratic. Everything was pure aggression, pure expansion, no retreat. He would accept no restraint on his plans. And he seemed to be laboring under the illusion that he was really good at what he was doing and that Germany was going to win a glorious victory. Maybe this goes back to his mother, Clara. I don't know. But the German military can see what's going to happen. They know Germany has no prayer. They're going to lose and lose badly. Time to cut your losses. But Hitler would hear of no such talk. In fact, it was treasonous. The Third Reich was going to stand for 1,000 years. Was Hitler insane? I really don't know. Did he suffer from an excess of hubris? Absolutely. Hell to the yes. These military officials, who knew that Germany was headed to absolute ruin as a country, decided they had to assassinate Hitler, and that led to the famous July plot of 1944, when a group of generals, colonels, even General Rommel, seemed to agree with the idea that Hitler needed to die. They plant a bomb, and somehow, miraculously, Hitler escapes when so many other people were killed. It really wasn't until... I don't know, March of 1945, that Hitler realized Germany was going to lose. Why was Hitler so detached from reality? Part of the reason might have been that his doctor was giving him pretty heavy doses of methamphetamines. And because Hitler couldn't sleep, his doctor gave him opiates to help with that. And Hitler's health was just plain failing. You can't burn that hot without burning out quickly. He survived a heart attack in 1944. 
he was becoming kind of a shell or a husk of his former self, and he was only 55, 56 years old. But whatever the reasons, Hitler realizes very late in the game that he's going to lose the war. The Soviets are in Germany, and they're headed toward Berlin, and he knows that when the Soviets catch him, it's not going to go well for him. Because of his increasing fear and paranoia, especially after the July plot, he moves into the Führer bunker in Berlin in January of 1945, taking with him his German shepherd Blondie, his girlfriend Eva Braun, and only receiving visits from some of his most trusted Nazi psychopaths in April of 1945, saying that Germany did not deserve to continue existing as a nation if it's going to lose to the Allies. If Hitler's going down, he's going to take all of Germany with him. He orders the destruction of all the industrial capacity of the German nation. Destroy every industry in Germany, he orders. He tells Albert Speer that Germany has forfeited its right to exist as a nation, and it's time to scorch the earth. Now, Albert Speer completely ignores the order, but the point is, if you wonder whether it was all about Adolf Hitler or whether Adolf Hitler cared mostly about Germany, that should help settle your mind on that matter. On April 28, 1945, Hitler receives word that there are no German troops able to defend Berlin any longer. The Soviets are in Berlin, and there's nothing they can do to stop them. On the night of 28th of April, he marries his long-term girlfriend, Eva Braun. On the 29th of April, Hitler receives word that Benito Mussolini is dead in Italy, and he dictates his last will and testament, and he fills it with these same sick, hate-filled perseverations that have basically characterized his entire political life. Through his extremely poor military judgment, he has run the entire nation of Germany right into the ground. He has made it a pariah on the world stage. He has condemned the German people to an ignominious defeat. And yet he still believes that people care what he thinks they should or shouldn't do. So he writes this in his will, quote, Above all, I charge the leaders of the nation and those under them to scrupulous observance to laws of race and to merciless opposition to the universal poisoners of all peoples, international Jewry, end quote. And on April 30th, 1945, Hitler takes a pistol and shoots himself in the mouth. He doesn't want his body found or defiled, so his assistants take his body to the Reich Chancellery and burn it. Kind of a fitting metaphor for the way the entire German nation went down in flames, thanks to Adolf Hitler. So why is he the worst person ever. Why am I being so cliche? So far you've only caught little snippets of what's in the heart of Adolf Hitler, so let me go through Adolf Hitler's moral balance sheet and let's see where he ends up. Of course war is chaos, so statistics will be all over the map, but World War II in Europe could not have started without Adolf Hitler. It couldn't have gone on as long as it did without Adolf Hitler. His invasion of Poland triggered the whole thing. His invasion of the Soviet Union resulted in millions of deaths. So, Let's lay that at the feet of Adolf Hitler, right where it belongs. The government of the Russian Republic in the 1990s estimated that 26.6 million Soviets lost their lives in World War II, including 8 to 9 million who died from famine and disease. In 2005, the German government said that German losses in World War II, that's from Germany, Austria, and conscripts from other areas, the dead numbered at 7.4 million persons, 4.3 million military dead and missing, and over 3 million civilians. Because of Hitler's invasion of Poland 
and the subsequent need for the Soviet army to push him back out again, the number of Polish dead are estimated by the Institute of National Remembrance as between 5.6 and 5.8 million, including almost 2 million non-Jewish Polish civilians and 3 million Jewish civilians. Add to that 350,000 Czechoslovakians, 600,000 French, almost 500,000 Hungarians, 200,000 Dutch, 450,000 British, 2 million Yugoslavians. The list goes on and on. You get the point, though. And don't forget that Hitler had absolute dictatorial control over everything that happened in Germany. Of course, some minor decisions could have been made without him, but all of the big picture stuff... And therefore, all of these deaths go back to Hitler. And again, I just hate statistics in a way. We have to go over them. But none of it conveys the human misery involved in these conflicts. Listen to what President Eisenhower said when he visited Russia in 1945. He says, quote, When we flew into Russia in 1945, I did not see a house standing between the western borders of the country and the area around Moscow. That's a huge swath of land. Okay, going back to Eisenhower. Through this overrun region, Marshal Zhukov told me, so many numbers of women, children, and old men had been killed that the Russian government would never be able to estimate the total. End quote. And there are countless individual horror stories. What about the cold, clinical, industrial, systematic annihilation of entire populations of Jews, homosexuals, Roma, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc.? In other words, can we blame Adolf Hitler for the Holocaust? There are two main schools of thought about this among historians. One is called functionalism, and that maintains that the Holocaust just happened based on the structure of the society that Hitler had set up and the people that he had put in charge, but that Adolf Hitler himself did not intend or order directly the Holocaust. The other view is called intentionalism. Intentionalists say Adolf Hitler planned the extermination of Jewish people as early as 1918, and that as soon as he got into power, he personally oversaw the implementation of this dream he had to exterminate Jews from Europe. I can't go into the entire debate because it is not settled. I think many current historians take kind of a synthesis view of the two. Some of it was intended by Hitler, In fact, the extermination of the Jews was explicitly intended by Hitler, but the implementation came through the structure of the Nazi hierarchy and the death's head units of the SS. What do we know for sure? We do know that Hitler was not opposed to the idea of mass murder. He signed Action T4, 2-300,000 people die. We know that Hitler's anti-Semitism was not just a political ploy. He really, obsessively hated Jews. Although we don't have any one order saying, let's start the Holocaust, we have plenty of documentary evidence that Hitler wanted to eradicate all of the Jewish population of Germany and Europe. As early as 1919, when Hitler's only 30 years old, he writes in a letter saying that the aim of a strong national government, quote, must unshakably be the removal of all the Jews, end quote. Now you may say he means to move them out of Germany, and that certainly seems to have been the case. But in 1922, Hitler writes this to Joseph Hell, a journalist at the time, quote, Once I really am in power, my first and foremost task will be the annihilation of the Jews. As soon as I have power to do so, I will have gallows built in rows, as many as traffic allows. 
Then the Jews will be hanged indiscriminately, and they will remain hanging until they stink. They will hang there as long as the principles of hygiene permit. As soon as they have been untied, the next batch will be strung up, and so on down the line until the last Jew in Munich has been exterminated. Other cities will follow suit precisely in this fashion until all Germany has been completely cleansed of Jews. End quote. What else can I say? I mean, who said things like this and then actually followed through once he gained power? I don't know anybody else. On the 21st of January, 1939, Hitler is speaking with a reporter, says, quote, We are going to destroy the Jews. They are not going to get away with what they did on the 9th of November, 1918. A day of reckoning has come, end quote. Nine days later at the Sports Palace in Berlin, he says to the entire crowd, quote, And we say that the war will not end as the Jews imagine it will, namely with the uprooting of the Aryans. But the result of this war will be the complete annihilation of the Jews, end quote. And this is how Hitler saw it. It was either Germany or the Jews. That is how his feverish, confused, hate-filled little brain worked. In fact, as early as Mein Kampf, Hitler wrote this, quote, If at the beginning of the war, which was World War I at the time, during the war 12 or 15,000 of these Hebrew corruptors of the people had been held under poison gas, as happened to hundreds of thousands of our very best German workers in the field, the sacrifice of millions at the front would not have been in vain. End quote. In other words, if he could have killed some Jews at the beginning of World War I, they wouldn't have lost. Don't ask me to explain his rationale here. It makes no sense. I can hardly read the words of this man. The same day, 30th of January, 1939, that he speaks to the sports arena, he speaks to the Reichstag saying, quote, I want to be a prophet again today. If international finance jury in Europe and beyond should succeed once more in plunging the peoples into a world war then the result will not be the Bolshevization of the earth, and thus the victory of Jewry, but the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe, end quote. So you see how his brain works. He has so many things muddled together, and the overarching motivation, the governing value by which he organizes all information, is his obsessive hatred of Jews. That's why you can't help but agree, I think, with Klaus Hildebrand, the historian. He says... The entire moral responsibility for the Holocaust falls squarely at the feet of Hitler. The entire Holocaust was nothing less than the culmination of Hitler's pathological hatred of Jews, which for all intents and purposes formed the basis of Nazi genocide and drove the regime to pursue its racial eliminationist goals. Whether or not Hitler never gave a direct order for the Holocaust is immaterial. End quote. Most scholars trace the decision to implement what Hitler called the final solution to a secret meeting on December 12, 1941. Fifty Nazi officials are there. Joseph Goebbels attended and recorded the following in his journal, quote, With respect of the Jewish question, the Fuhrer has decided to make a clean sweep. He prophesied to the Jews that if they again brought about a world war, they would live to see their annihilation in it. That wasn't just a catchword. If the German people have now again sacrificed 160,000 dead on the Eastern Front, then those responsible for this bloody conflict will have to pay with their lives. End quote. So I don't know if Goebbels and Hitler were insane. They were insane with hatred. They started World War II, and here they are blaming the Jews for 160,000 dead Germans. 
saying they needed to exterminate the Jews for starting another war. But the upshot of all this is that at the beginning of World War II, about 9.5 million Jewish people lived in Europe. By the end of the war, 6 million of those 9.5 million people were dead through concentration camps, pogroms, ghettos, or mass executions, and dead to slake the unquenchable bloodlust and hatred of one man who had fallen completely under the spell of some stupid, sick superstition. And it wasn't just Jews. 7 million Soviet civilians, 1.8 million non-Polish Jewish civilians, 300,000 Serb civilians, as we said, two to 300,000 people with disabilities, 200,000 gypsies or Roma people, about 2,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, 70,000 antisocial types, hundreds, possibly thousands of homosexuals. I could go on and on. But that list is not the casualties of war. I want to make that clear. There were millions of war casualties. The numbers that I was citing are victims of a cold, ruthless, mechanistic Nazi extermination policies. Think about those three words, Nazi extermination policies. And again, these are just statistics. There's a story, there's a person, a human being behind every single one of these numbers. People with goals and plans that were completely thwarted, people who loved their families that they then got to watch die, people who had been dehumanized, depersonalized, and just humiliated before every single one of these deaths. So now you know why I can't really avoid the decision to rank Adolf Hitler as the worst person ever, period, ever. Some people try to escape that conclusion by saying, look, a monster that bad had to be insane. But I'll quote from the conclusion of a forensic psychological analysis done by Dr. Fritz Redlich, author of Hitler, Diagnosis of a Destructive Prophet. He says, quote, Hitler exhibited many psychiatric symptoms, including extreme paranoia and defenses that could fill a psychiatry textbook. But he most likely was not truly mentally ill. He goes on to say, Hitler was well aware of what he was doing, and he chose to do it with pride and enthusiasm. End quote. It's also true that people have tried to excuse some of Hitler's actions or at least mitigate his evil by saying, look, he had centuries of anti-Semitism that he was essentially a product of, that he had plenty of accomplices, that the one of the most educated nations on the planet bought into what he was selling. And all that might be true. I wouldn't argue with it. But it was still Hitler. He was the one doing the selling. And after reading a little bit about him, I have to say, I think he was a pretty self-serving little creep. As a way to kind of lighten it up a little bit and maybe as a special bonus, I want to read to you some of the words of Alexander Moritz Frey. He was a German writer of science fiction and fantasy who was left-leaning, so he had to go into exile in 1933, but he had the rare privilege of serving with Adolf Hitler in World War I. This is how Frey describes their first meeting. Quote, One evening, a pale, tall man tumbled down into the cellar after the first shells of the daily evening attack had begun to fall, fear and rage glowing in his eyes. At that time he looked tall because he was so thin. A full mustache covered the ugly slit of his mouth. He sat there panting, his yellow face grew red, and he resembled a gobbling turkey as he began to rant about the English. I immediately had the same impression that many had of him later. 
that he took the military maneuvers of the enemy personally as if they wanted to take his precious life in particular, end quote. It's honest that Fry had nothing but contempt for Hitler. He says, quote, He spoke, ranted, boasted, and distorted the true state of affairs with a certain cunning talent, end quote. Boy, Hitler was the exact same as a private in the army as he was his entire life, distorted the true state of affairs with a certain cunning talent. In another place, Fry says, quote, When people claim that he had been a coward, that's not true. But he also wasn't brave. He lacked the composure for that. He was always alert, ready to act, backstabbing, very concerned about himself, end quote. Fry ran into Hitler a few more times, but I find this last part particularly instructive. He says, quote, We're still treating Hitler like he's some holy man or something. Let's stop doing that. He was just a pathetic little psychopath, and they all fell for him. End quote. Now, last but not least, I want to dispel some rumors about quotes that have been attributed to Adolf Hitler, because whenever you have a point that you want to make very unpopular, basically you want to refute it, all you have to do is attribute it to Adolf Hitler. One of the things that comes up again and again is in the American gun debate. Since nobody would want to agree with Hitler about gun control, supposedly Hitler said this, quote, This year will go down in history for the first time a civilized nation has full gun registration. Our streets will be safer, our police more efficient, and the world will follow our lead into the future. End quote. This quote is used by gun advocates to say that only Nazis confiscate your weapons. And if Hitler liked it, it must be very bad. Like I say, if Hitler didn't exist, we would have to invent him. But unfortunately, this does not reflect accurately any of the truth about Hitler. In fact, the National Socialist Party, when they came into power with Hitler, they inherited some very strict gun laws. They actually loosened the gun laws so people in Germany could keep and bear arms more freely. Not that that has any bearing whatsoever on the discussion we should be having about gun laws. Argument by association with Nazis is a tried and true technique, but it is not logically sound. Here's another very elaborate Hitler quote. Supposedly he said, quote, The best way to take control over a people and control them utterly is to take a little of their freedom at a time, to erode their rights by a thousand tiny and almost imperceptible reductions, in this way, the people will not see those rights and freedoms being removed until past the point at which those changes can be reversed. Once again, Hitler never said that, and yet it's a favorite of some civil libertarians. Now, I love civil liberties. I want civil liberties. But you can't use fake Hitler quotes to support your position. And it also is not very accurate to portray Hitler as some kind of subtle Machiavellian genius. Hitler's technique was not to use a scalpel. It was to use a giant sledgehammer, a verbal battering ram. Now, the last quote, which we hear attributed to Hitler all the time, but we have no idea if he ever said it. In fact, it doesn't seem very likely when you consider the way he viewed his own education. He said, quote, Let me control the textbooks and I will control the state, end quote, or something like that. You can go online right now and you can see this quote attributed to Adolf Hitler, usually in the context of somebody who objects to some socially progressive information reaching their children through school curricula. But there is no evidence that Hitler ever said this. But once again, Hitler said it, or Hitler did it, is not just an argument, it's a refutation. This concludes 
our epic series on the worst people ever to live on the face of this earth. And this is a very difficult episode. This guy has more ink than anybody else I've ever come across. Exponentially more words have been written about this man than anybody else in the top 10 worst people. And so it's with a happy heart and optimistic feelings that I leave behind the series on the 10 worst people ever. And we're going to begin our series on the humans versus everything. Adapt or die. Another day in this carnival of souls Another night settles and as quickly as it goes The memories are shadows Ego the page And I can't seem to find my way home And it's almost like Your heaven's trying everything Your heaven's trying everything to keep me out 